The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 174. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart team. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Panel Z! I am Scottish. About things. Ooh. Be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 10th Doctor story, The Waters of Mars. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, if you have not yet done so, please go and subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or at the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should also hit the bell to get notifications of new episodes. So we're talking right now about this, uh, the one of the final, there's an asterisk on that, final uh, live action episode. This is the last live action episode before the two-part regeneration episodes that we get right. with uh, the end the David Tennant's time as the doctor and Russell T Davies time running the show um and there is an animated episode we'll be talking about in the future uh that that came out in between but this really marks the progression from the right into the regeneration and it was originally going to be a christmas episode uh when they were planning it uh hence the lingering christmas winter references the snow uh, a reference yep. to a Christmas dinner that that, that they get in, but uh, so this is uh, where it falls and things. It was broadcast uh, November fifteenth, two thousand nine, and uh, it won a Hugo Award for the writers. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, th- there are aspects of it that are really good. I'm not sure. It. it, it I, well, I put it, it on that level. It, so uh, I guess a couple things to say about the Hugos. The Hugos are the awards issued by the other sci-fi writers yeah. to yep. honor fellow writers. They're different than the major fan award, which is the Nebulas, right. but they often track. And yeah. this one, best short form dramatic presentation. So mm. it's not being compared to like other sci-fi novels mm-hmm. where right. you get the opportunity to go into way more depth and be all philosophical and stuff. It's also not being compared to long-form sci-fi movies right? where you could do more world-building and character stuff. It's specifically short-form visual presentation, so it's primarily being compared to other sci-fi TV episodes. Right. And for years, that was dominated by Star Trek. Star Trek Mm. would just win the Hugo every year for that category. And eventually, you started to get some additional stuff. Babylon 5 won, Doctor Who is one, and so it's no longer just Star Trek dominated. But for years, Star Trek was basically the only regular high-quality 
TV right. show sci-fi thing that was being produced. So of course it won. Yeah. So it, I thought this was a notable achievement. I thought it deserved a Hugo Award for that category. Having said that, the Hugos have now been poisoned by yeah. various factors, and they have severely degraded in value. But back in 2010, when this won a Hugo, they, that, they still meant something. Yeah, right. yeah. And I'm not sure what else was, uh, was airing in 2009 to compare it against. So it would be interesting to, to, to go back and look yeah, at Yeah, Star Trek was, was long off the air by that point. Right. Yeah, yeah. So as far as this story goes, the, where we should place this in the timeline of things, of the Doctor's timeline, uh, it takes place, as we've been told, just before the day of the Doctor, the 2013 10th Doctor, 11th Doctor, War Doctor story, the 15th mm-hmm. anniversary special, uh, which itself immediately precedes End of Time, which is the beginning of the Doctor's regeneration. So just to sort of place it in our minds where wh- what storylines uh, follow after this. So it really deals with what happens to the Doctor, which we've seen before. What happens to the Doctor when he's unregulated and unchecked by either other Time Lords or his companions? Yep. As the lone survivor of the Time War, he declares himself to be Time Lord Victorious and Master of the Laws of Time. That's what we'll, we'll eventually, you know, at we'll the, by there. the end of this episode. Yeah. But uh, so that's sort of a, uh, a, a brief understanding of where they're going. By the way, I had a thought recently about the Day of the Doctor, and I, since we've already recorded our thoughts on that, I'll just go ahead and mention it now, since we sure. won't be revisiting it in the future. But, you know, originally, uh, Stephen Moffat wrote that not with the War Doctor, but with um, Christopher Eccleston's Ninth Doctor in that same role. Mm-hmm. And so he would have established that it was Christopher Eccleston's Ninth Doctor that pushed the big red button to kill all the Time Lords and Daleks. And... We have as a as a sort of companion to the War Doctor in the broadcast version, uh, Billy Piper as the bad wolf entity. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she when she first meets him, she says, "Oh well, I'm the moment, and I picked this from your I don't know past, future, one of those things." And think how meaningful that would have been if mm. it had been. Christopher Eccleston's doctor. So this would have yeah. been a young Christopher Eccleston who had not yet met Rose Tyler. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, yeah, I picked this form from your, I don't know, past, future, one of those things. And he had met the bad wolf, the image of the bad wolf entity all this time earlier. And think of what right. of, a, of a different light that would cast on his interactions with Rose Tyler once he meets her. In yeah. the department store, it's like, oh, I'm going to take an interest in this person. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I I hadn't thought of that before. Um, so uh, let's talk about this episode. Uh, we it begins with uh, Adelaide uh, Brooke. I think it's uh, yep, Adelaide mm-hmm. Brooke, Captain Adelaide, Adelaide Brooke. She's talking to her daughter on Earth via the a recording uh from Mars. Uh, and that's realistic because Mars is an average of 14 light minutes away. So it's mm-hmm. really at its closest, it's four light minutes away, but it's an yes. average of 14. And so right. it's you cannot hold real time real time conversations yeah. with people. It would be maddening with the latency. To and say the we're least. Told, yes. And, and we're also given the idea that the solar flares are causing communications problems, which is something that kind of lends to the isolation that they will experience in this episode they can't consult with earth uh for yeah. whatever uh is going on by the way so captain adelaide brooke is played by lindsay duncan 
Mm-hmm. And I have long thought that Lindsay Duncan could pull off the doctor. Mm-hmm. Now, in this, she's very serious, but she, it, I, they're just like now that we're starting to cast women as the doctor, you have to think about what's the personality range. And they, yep. with Jodie Whittaker, they've gone friendly is yep. the dominant mm-hmm. personality note. But I've thought that after they prove to us that a woman doctor can be friendly, which they needed to, I would. I think it would be nice to explore a more strict uh, feminine hmm. doctor, and hmm. I think Lindsay Duncan would be able to pull. You know, she may. This is made ten years ago, so she may feel she's too old at this point or whatever to act in a series with as intensive amount of filming as this involves. Right. right. But um, in terms of her ability as an actress to do a more strict version of the doctor i think she could do that add in a little bit of humor and mm-hmm. and and i think she'd be good to go she already displays warmth in this right but she also displays strictness and i think that combination that lindsay duncan adelaide brooke combination of characteristics you add in a little bit of humor i think you've got a good recipe for a doctor i, I like that idea i mean it would be sort of in the Strain of the like the seriousness of like a Capaldi. He was more but grumpy without without the grumpiness and goofiness. Yeah, yeah just yeah. more right. more warm but strict with some humor. Yeah, that's actually an interesting idea. Yeah, because I really I enjoy her portrayal in this. She has a the, yeah. she has a way. Uh, interesting that they tried originally to get Helen Mirren to play this role, uh, but hmm. weren't able to make it work. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, I think it works well as it is. So we have the TARDIS landing on Mars. The Doctor emerges in his space suit, the one from, uh, what was the, 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 the one where- the, 42, the, the impossible planet. The impo- yes. Uh, the, so he, he's got wearing that space suit, and uh, he sees a moon base, or a Mars, sorry, Mars base, called uh, Bowie Base One. Although he doesn't, he doesn't know that it's that one yes, yet. not yet. But mm-hmm. just, just as he comes out of the TARDIS, he's smiling, he's happy, so he's no longer being Mr. Grumpy Companionless Doctor. Yes, yes. He's and he's gotten over his Donna trauma. And, you know, <laughs> and, there's, and there's not enough episodes where they're in inhospitable atmospheres, you know, where they actually have to suit up. There's just yes. not enough episodes like that. Yes. Um, I, I did want to note that they, they named it Bowie Base One after David Bowie uh, give, mm-hmm. for his his mm-hmm. song, uh, you know the Space Odyssey. Mars song, Space Odyssey. Thank Life, you. Life on Mars. Life on Mars. Or yes. Life Mars. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's probably what it's Life on Mars. Uh, so the very interesting reference there. Um, the Doctor, as he's observing this base from uh, from afar, from uh, he's put under arrest by a robot called Gadget, a very annoying robot. Oh, uh, gadget, gadget, <laughs> gadget, gadget. Uh, it, and he's brought in to, uh, to, to you know, under threat of uh, a gun held by uh, Captain Adelaide Brooke. Uh, he's placed under arrest, and he said, name, rank, and intention, the doctor, doctor, and fun. This <laughs> is <laughs> 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 fun. And, uh, and meanwhile, uh, it, uh, I don't think there's enough, well, they're on Mars. They're the first settlers on Mars. And this guy shows up, and it's sort of... I don't know. I just don't feel like they're, they're, they are skeptical enough. They are blown away enough by the fact of this guy showing up. I mean, there's some reference to other places who may have sent him. The Philippines or Spain or maybe the Branson inheritance, which yes. is a reference to uh, Richard Branson, Virgin, Richard Branson yep. and Virgin Galactic. Yes. Um, but yeah, yeah, they they don't, I mean, they don't like put him in a room and interrogate him and lock him up. I mean, when there's 
a crisis in the garden that's like, you're coming with me, as opposed to <laughs> we're locking you up. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we can't deal with you right now, so we're putting you over here. I mean, it's uh, just not even like, where's your ship? How did you get here? How did we not see something come from orbit? You know, we would have seen something on our sensors somewhere. Nope. Right. Uh, so the uh, we have uh, we cut to the gardeners in the the big biodome where they're growing all their food, uh, and uh, one of them eats a carrot and starts acting weirdly because uh, I mean if you eat carrots that's just weird to begin with, but uh, he ends up becoming uh, water zombies of Mars. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. what I call it. Um, then when the doctor finds out who they actually are, he re- like he realizes who they are. They're the first colonists on Mars. He he we He's have this gushes. Mo- Oh, about yes. him. It's like, oh, I'm so, it's so great to meet you. Oh, everybody knows you. Everybody always will know you. And, and, yeah. and then he says, how long have you been here? Uh, 17 months. What's today's date? November yes. 21st. I have to leave. <laughs> yeah. We get this montage <laughs> of, of these, yeah, we get this montage of these web pages uh, where he sees their, first their profiles and their obituaries. Um, and he realizes this is the date they died in history. And so he's like, I, I, I'm sorry f- from the depths of both my hearts. Um, I'm, I'm, I have to go. I really have no choice but to leave. And, uh, but when they hear these weird growls coming over the intercom from the biodome, um, and it starts to shut down, it's like, no, you're not going anywhere. In fact, Adelaide says, you're coming with me to the biodome. Um, and so they, they have to go, to go over to that. What I like about this is this they've established now earlier in New Who, as early as Christopher Eccleston's time, the idea of a fixed point in time. Right. Mm-hmm. They gave a name to something that has previously been on the show, but they didn't have a name for it. But now we have the name fixed point. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time since they've established that where a doctor has walked into a fixed point in time, something yes. he knows cannot change. And he's not going to be, in his mind, able to save anybody. And I love the anxiety that creates for him and the just, mm-hmm. I have to get out of here right. thing, yeah, th- which is the main forward driving element for the doctor's personal story arc in yeah. this. That's what yes. creates the drama for him is for the first time on the show, he's encountering a situation where he knows he can't save people right. in this way. Yeah, the doctor's primary motive, you know, the, his primary mission in life is to save people. And so he's got these mo- things that he can't, you know, times when he can't save people. Yeah, that that conflict in him is really the driver of this episode, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so they they walk down these very long corridors. Okay. Let's address the corridors. <laughs> Why do these are, do they have these mile long corridors between everything that I mean why would you waste so many resources on them? Especially when later on she's like, oh, we couldn't bring bikes. A bike would cost so much fuel. Well, you spent all the money to build the, these hunky The corridor. Because you've got to have corridors to run down. This is Doctor Who. It's written into <laughs> oh their contracts. they got to have corridors yeah. to run down. And not just corridors, warehouse-sized corridors. Yeah. Isn't it going to be, I mean, you can just imagine the, the conversations of, among the designers. Isn't it going to be hard for people to get down these mile-long corridors without any transport? Oh, no, it's going to be super easy, barely an inconvenience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there needs to be a pitch meeting for that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we also get the doctor talking about how he doesn't like robots because people dress them up and give them silly names. But when Yuri, the, one of the other astronauts, mentions his sister's robot dog, the doctor says, oh, well, that's different. Dogs, that's different. Yeah. 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 Canine. Canine yep. reference. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, 
Adelaide uh, then says, it's been 40 years of chaos back on Earth with uh, near extinction of the human race, which made me think, so it's November 21st, 2059, so 40 years, this starts in 2019. So it has a... What 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 near extinction of the human race events could would be never never, never mind so no. <laughs> so uh, they get to the biodome and uh, Adelaide starts calling out for Andrew Andrew Stone it's Captain Brooke and I'm like is there more than one Andrew here like <laughs> Andrew <laughs> Andrew Stone there's nine people on the planet <laughs> one of them's named Andrew well, you she's pretty formal at name. times so <laughs> yeah I just thought it was a, a funny a funny little a human lapse. Um, then the other interesting thing is that so her second command is this guy Ed, who keeps getting slapped down by her. Oh I yeah, mean, she's mean to him. Like he, well, he, he also keeps getting sort of uh, too big for his britches, a little bit mm-hmm. like uh, exceeding his mandate as in, in in going beyond what he's supposed to be doing. And it's like, yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic they got going on here. It it, it it's problematic on both their parts. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and yeah. at, at the at the very end, uh, you know, he mentions about how you could never forgive me. And of course, they don't they don't go into it because then the shuttle blows up at that point. But right, you know, there's 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 a prior relationship there that is that this yeah. is caused or Specific- that this is caused by. Specifically, what he says is, "I hated this bloody job. You never gave me a chance. Never could forgive me. See you later." Right. Right. Yeah, boom. Yeah. So interesting a reference to a back history that we never get. Um, so then they have the the doctor the, that they're with, Doctor Tarek. Uh, finds uh, I'm going to call him Wet Andy, <laughs> okay? Because like Wet Heather from the Twelfth Doctor's uh, time. Oh, yeah. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have Wet Andy who's dripping everywhere. Uh, meanwhile, in the in, in, in who gets zombified by him. Uh, meanwhile, in the sick bay, Maggie, who's the other uh, gardener, is uh, gets overcome by the aliens in a delayed fashion, and starts talking about wanting Earth and all its water. But she's being kept in isolation, so uh, it's okay for the moment. Uh, and let's talk about the effects for these water zombies. So yes. apparently when you become a water zombie full on, it, mm-hmm. it, you put in contact lenses so yep. your eyes look different. Yep. And there's this kind of modeling around your mouth that, where it looks like the skin has, has swelled up and fractured. Yeah. And water is constantly pouring out of your mouth and you're constantly your whole body is soaked in water and you can also... Water will drip off of your hands in an abnormally aggressive way. And they explain that there's some kind of internal fission process happening to make this water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, wait, how <laughs> it's that doesn't make sense <laughs> because fission breaks apart atoms and water is an agglomeration of atoms. And that's not the right term. And also, where is the mass coming from? Because you've got water pouring off of these people. Oh, yeah. And their body mass is not changing. They're not shriveling up to nothing as that happens. So this mass is coming from somewhere. On the other hand, my heart goes out to the actors, I think, what that had to portray these parts. Because they've got water pouring out of their mouths constantly. And they either did tons and tons of spit takes. (laughs) <laughs> or they used the modeling around the mouth to hide an input tube uh, to yep. get a water tube in their mouth that could just shower this there's, stuff out. There's a but couple of scenes. Way, 
they're not breathing out of those mouths no. during these long scenes when they're standing around g- gurgling water. There's a couple of times where you can actually see where basically they have what looks like a you know like a hockey uh, or you know mouth guard, and yeah. it's got a little tube that's connected inside the mouth where the water's just pouring out basically oh. from the front of their mouth. You could Ugh. just see it just right, and it's just like, oh, I would be gagging so bad if if that was me right now. Well, and it must have been unpleasant even just standing around being. T- soaked all the time you know that so, yeah. well then Kudos then they've got them. the scenes where they're literally shooting water out of their hands almost you know like the force lightning you know they had to have <laughs> right. a big hose basically running up their yeah. sleeve as they're doing yeah. this that yeah, could not that have been pleasant fire fire hose size hose yes yeah um yeah that was that was very interesting effects that they had going here by the way one other realism note is we've got these people on this planet and they're here for a minimum of five years before they see anybody else. Yeah. What are the living arrangements here? As in, I mean, at like we only come now. It, we, there's, these there's people five, aren't naturally paired off. Yeah. But in any there, kind there, of long term colony, you send pairs of men and women. I mean, right. married yeah. people historically. Yeah. Now there are. Um, if I remember right, it was like a star, like a five pointed star. Basically, is what the the actual thing was and we only saw two of the domes the central dome and the food dome so right you assume they've got much more living quarters available than we see oh yeah i'm not concerned about their living quarters i'm concerned about the interpersonal relationships of these people historically you set up a colony you send married you send families that's what a colony is it's not a a research base where you you know send people who are single or are married but their family isn't with them if you're establishing a colony where you don't right. have you don't have other outside humans coming for years, you send families. Well, and it looks like at least uh, what was it, uh, Roman and I forget the other one, the uh, the the Asian girl, um, are a couple? paired off. Uh, what's what was are, it are, are a couple? Well, maybe, but yes. they don't establish any of that on screen, and they ought to. It no, would they juice do. the drama. It's like that's my wife, and what are we doing about this? No, they do establish that they're, they're a couple. There's a couple. There's a there's a scene where they're holding hands and they're they're looking intimate and yeah, no, no, not no, like that's married, all but subtle. It's yes, it, it needs to for the drama and the <laughs> realism. It needs yeah. to be explicit, and it right. need, you need to play off of this. Sure. So at this point, the doctor and Adelaide they end up having to run for the door. They run into the the long corridor. Adelaide orders everyone not to drink any water or touch it, uh, not even a drop. And they, they have to run down this mile-long corridor with the aliens chasing them. Aliens are faster, so the doctor soups up Gadget, which goes so fast it leaves trails of fire a la uh, Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love it, though. It's like, oh, it goes two miles an hour, so he soups it up, and then you see the scene where they're riding it, and it's like, or you know, like you can see the, the bad guys behind him. Yeah, he souped it up to a whole five miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, the aliens apparently can't get through the airlock because it's, did they say hermetically sealed? Yeah, Did, yep. Hermetic, that, hermetically sealed. That's a real thing. Okay. No, well, I get the seal, but is a hermetic seal like it, they can't shoot water through it? I mean, I just it, like somehow it's it's impervious. Obviously to not, because they're eventually <laughs> able to do that. Yeah, I was gonna say. Um. So the the doctor ends up. Uh, they end up going to the sick bay where the doctor talks to Wet Maggie uh, in ancient North Martian, which is which is good. Uh, Ed says that's nonsense. That doesn't. There's no such thing. Uh, but he also he also reasons out that she's creating the water. I guess if 
the source of the mass, like the oxygen, is the is one key part. So they could she could be they could be pulling it in from the air, but the hydrogen is the thing, like where they get in the hydrogen from the to make the water. That's that's a good one. Um, so they uh, Adelaide orders evacuation of the base. You know that this, this they have a protocol for that. Action procedure one. Yes, uh, they're also the, sitting on top of a glacier, which is where their water supply comes from. Right. Um, the doctor points out that any one of them could be infected and not know it. So this because Maggie didn't churn right away, so they really can't leave yet. So Adelaide and the doctor go to well, look oh, at the ice I field. I think he was implying more than that. It's like if you take even one drop of water back to Earth, it's going to infect Earth. He's hinting at action procedure five because he knows right. that they're going to detonate a nuke today. Yep. Right. He he's, already he's knows. trying to prep her for that. Yeah. When they go to look at this ice, this glacier that they sit on top of, he does. He he mentions the ice warriors. Mm-hmm. Uh, in sort of why don't we see them? He thinks that maybe they 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 froze the the creatures in the ice. That's that's why they were there. Uh, that the ice warriors took care of them before. Right. So the ice they had, like attacked the ice warriors, and the ice warriors used their tech to freeze them. And in a deleted scene, he suggests maybe that's why they're not here. They left the planet. Also. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. The the doctor then asks Adelaide what about what inspired her life, you know, to become an astronaut and she she recalls that day that the Daleks stole the earth what we've seen previously and um her parents were killed by the Daleks uh, or presumably they left and they never came back. Uh but she saw a Dalek through the skylight. They, they just used the Dalek invasion as an excuse. Right. Yep. Yes, and she, uh, oh gosh, that is so dark. <laughs> hey, honey, it's our chance now to get to abandon our child. <laughs> oh, finally, we can get rid of her. Uh, that, that is dark. But uh, they, they, she, she ends up seeing a Dalek through the skylight, and it's right there, and it doesn't kill her, it doesn't exterminate her. It just she looks says at it, her. It, it looked into me, suggesting yes. a deep recognition. Right. Yep. And uh, she decides, and it flies off into the sky. And that moment is when she decided she would follow it into space, and that's how she became uh, an astronaut. And the doctor starts hinting to her about what's going to happen in her own future. That right. he's here, he's prepping her again for the suicide decision because it's yes. like you've told your granddaughter this, and thirty years from now, inspired by your legacy, she's going to go to Alpha Centauri, and then your other descendants will lead humanity into the stars, and it all starts with you. And right. what you do here today. Yeah. And she says, why are you telling me this? And he says, as a consolation. <laughs> right. So. Right. But Adelaide then discovers that due to the timing of things and the way the water circulated or something, no one else could possibly be infected right now. Yeah. They, fi- they find a, a video of Andy yep. the gardener complaining about the fact that one of the water filters has just gone out and the replacement filters they sent don't fit. So mm-hmm. just today, is when unfiltered water first got into the biodome and that right. thus the infection just got in today. So he and, and, and uh, Maggie are the only ones who would have been infected. Except, in, yeah. Maggie, except it, they then infected the doctor. Right. But also Maggie, yeah, Maggie is walking around, you know, in their place. So there's, is there no sweat coming off? I mean, it's just a, that, that assurance that we couldn't possibly be infected. And as we know, in the era of coronavirus, water droplets get exhaled by people and inhaled <laughs> by other people. But apparently right. not this this pathogen isn't communicated that way. It doesn't matter in the end. By the way, speaking of coronavirus and, yeah. and lockdowns and stuff, 
It's interesting that we're reviewing this episode right now because it's all about (laughs) infections and we've got to make sure we have the food supplies and stock up on the food supplies here. And yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully, hopefully by the time, hopefully by the time this gets broadcast out, a lot of that has been lifted. But as we're sitting Uh, here right now, not so much. uh, Don't count on it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I know. So I know this wasn't planned this way. This is just in the the natural rotation of things, folks. So uh and and all and all that stuff about Maggie, you know, breathing out water or water droplets or sweat doesn't matter anyway because while they're tr- getting ready to evacuate onto the shuttle, uh wet Andy and wet Tarek are on the roof trying to get through what with water, you know, water will find its way through any crack and that sort of thing as we know. You know, uh, so it, yeah, I was Mag- going to say if you've ever had a a roof that leaks, trying to find <laughs> the actual source of the leak is a major pain in the butt. Water does find way into every little crack. Also, Maggie has escaped now and has been doing the pod scream uh, to all the other infected people. <laughs> That's right, calling them. <laughs> Meanwhile, the doctor just stands there uh, staring at them all, looking sad. But Adelaide has kicked him out. She said, yes. I know what day this is. This is the day we escape. Take, you take your spacesuit, go back to your spaceship and yep. have a good life or whatever. But he delays. He watches as they're as they're making preparations, they're trying to get the protein packs back onto the shuttle so they don't starve on the way to Earth, and the men are attacking from above, and the doctor is just grimly watching them, and he finally turns to leave, and then Adelaide locks him in the airlock to have a little chit-chat. Right. Uh, she demands to know what he knows, and he says, uh, basically, imagine you were in Pompeii, and no matter what you did to try to save them, Anything you do just makes it happen, which is a reference to the fires of Pompeii from just the previous season. Yes. Uh, And so the doctor, again, a reference to that fixed point in time. You can't, no matter what he does, he can't change it as he knows. Although he, there's a variation in the dialogue and I, the dialogue in this scene is really nicely textured. It's really well done between him and Adelaide talking over the Mm -hmm. intercom. It's, she, she shows she in particular shows a lot of emotional complexity as she's trying mm-hmm. to get her head around what the doctor is telling her. Um, and she like threatens him, says, I could, I could increase the pressure and crush you in there. And he says, but yes. you won't because that's not who you are. And there's a variation in dialogue where he says, I can't save you imply because of she's the one with right. the future that inspires humanity. It's, it's, but he, he doesn't, he's, conflating the fact he can't save her with the idea he can't save other people. And he finally does tell her what happened. He says, you're going to go to Action 5 today. You're going to detonate the nuke. No one's ever going to know why, but you were saving Earth. And he says, I think that Dalek spared you because he recognized you and knew you were a fixed point in time, that you couldn't die now without disrupting the timeline. Which is interesting that even the Daleks understood that you can't mess with the timeline. Like that, like as 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 implacable exterminators that they are, even well, they knew it's that funny, they shouldn't. It's funny too. We've had two episodes now where that's been brought up because yeah. in Revelation or uh, Remembrance of the Daleks, the Doctor says the same thing. Even they wouldn't change the timeline that dramatically. Right. right. And after he said he can't save her, she says, "Who's going to save you?" And he says, "Captain Adelaide Brooke." And that's yes. when she opens the airlock on him nice. and lets him yeah. out. Um, so as he's walking away, he listens as it's a lot of drama, a lot of things going on. He's listening as the water starts coming in. Uh, Steffi, the German uh, uh, crew member, 
she she gets separate from the others and she's locked in this isolation room and stops to listen to a message in German from a little girl, presumably a family member, daughter maybe. Yeah, as, little girl and a little boy. So she spends her last moments as a free conscious human watching family video, which is really touching. It, yes, it was. And then, Very then they see her out. We and we get in the reverse angle shot. We see her transforming, and it's from behind, and she's just jerking and twitching as the mm-hmm. water takes her over, and it is as water is pouring down from the ceiling. It is so creepy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so the others, they're they're trying to get out. It's now it's just uh, Ed on the shuttle. And uh, and the and Roman, oh, what is her name? Uh, Mia, that's her name. Uh, and uh, Yuri, Yuri, and Adelaide. Um, Roman gets in. It's, it's like behind them, and a drop of water falls from the ceiling and touches him on the cheek. And he stops and tells the others to go without him. And you know, Mia, you know, screams no, and you know they drag her off. And he and, yeah. and so he's doomed. would have been would have been better if he'd hit him in the eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's a mucous membrane, and well, yes. I mean that's that's the thing when you're not touching your face. That's one of the key things you're not getting in contact with is the entryway into your internal systems. Yes, exactly. That your skin is meant to protect you. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ed is on the shuttle getting it ready, and he looks down, and there's Maggie standing below him, um, and she sprays him with water, and just be- just before he can be uh, taken over, he self destructs the shuttle. Maggie somehow gets away. Not sure how, but uh, she does. Um, and that blows up and, you know, she she'd, sends d- she'd, she'd done all she needed to was get in there and infect them. Right, right. Yep. She was, tr- I think she was trying to get control of them so they can control the shuttle and, and take off. But uh, meanwhile, the doctor who's outside still walking away is, gets knocked down. Um, and, and at it, this it moment. It turns out that, Marsh, that whatever they got here will burn in the very thin Martian atmosphere. <laughs> we've right. got lots of flames here yes yes that's right uh and this is the point where he c- sort of has remembers that he is the last of the time lords and they're no longer around to stop him from doing whatever he wants that he's he's the ultimate arbiter of of whatever he's going to do and he says he's not going to die here because he was told uh he tells them that he was told he would only die when someone knocks four times at which point andy knocks on the door three times <laughs> And he says, and he says keep... three knocks is all you're getting. and It electrocutes him, which I'm wondering, why yeah. didn't they start with electrocuting these guys? But whatever. Okay. And then he he goes into Time Lord Victorious mode. The laws of time will obey me now. Mm. And uh, as the doctor works frantically to save everyone, uh, this time uh, using Gadget, uh, he's going to use Gadget yeah. to save everyone. As yeah. a robot. Yeah. The TARDIS remote control is a robot that he controls with his hands. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I, I love how he's like saying, "What's in this storage compartment?" And so, well, it's got atom clamps and spare robots and blah blah blah. And he's, "Who needs atom clamps? I've got a funny robot." <laughs> <laughs> I think the interesting thing now is it, we have this contrast. Before it was the Doctor who was emotionless, well, Adelaide was all frantic. Now mm-hmm. it's switched. The Doctor is frantic. Adelaide sort of goes into this emotionless uh, mode to enact Action Five: Self Destruct. Yeah, and she is now not on the same side as the Doctor. We've also had them flip in terms of their orientation. Previously, the Doctor was prepping her for Action 5, and she was resisting. Now he's resisting, and she's determined to go forward with Action 5. And it's very clear as he's triumphantly strutting around doing stuff, trying to save them. He even tells her, I'll fight you if I have to. 
But she is not on board with what he's doing right. now. She is on the other mm-hmm. side. She realizes this is he's gone insane and this is really bad and we have to do what we need to do here, even if it means dying. Yeah. And so they, you know, we have this, you know, the countdown and then everything blows up. But the TARDIS arrived just in time for them to get inside uh, just as the nuke goes off and they get transported back to a snowy London right outside uh, Adelaide's uh, house. Um, mm-hmm. Mia runs off. Yuri follows her. Mia's so distraught and confused by everything that happened. And that was nice. It was nice mm-hmm. to see someone see the TARDIS and not just be amazed and wonder, but actually <laughs> freak out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think she's a little traumatized. <laughs> yeah. That was nice. And, well, and so, meanwhile, meanwhile, the doctor's standing there. Well, isn't anybody going to thank me? Yeah, I just right. saved your lives. You know, give me a little gratitude here. Right. So Adelaide tells Yuri to go take care of her, which he does. And yep. and the doctor is like, okay, we're in front of Adelaide's house and she wasn't plan she's already been gone for two years. And yep. she wasn't planning on coming back for at least five. And that house is still not rented out to someone else. <laughs> and- or sold. <laughs> or sold, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh but uh, she says I was I'm supposed to be dead, and she objects to the to the possibility that the entire future of the human race could be changed because he saved her. And and she it, yeah it, she said he she says the whole of hu- of human history could change. No one should have that much power. And yeah. he says tough. Yeah. Right. And and he then goes on to start talking about how oh I've saved little people before, but you're the first major person I've saved. Oh, oh I'm he, good. And he, the phrase he, he "little didn't even people," use little people, he used unimportant people. And of course, yeah. then you flash forward to number eleven, uh, Doctor uh, Matt Smith, right. Doctor. doctor. Yeah, nine hundred years of time and space. I've never met anyone who wasn't important. Yeah. yeah, she also. I'm pretty sure he also used little people, and she snags on that and yeah. starts taking him to ta- to task for it about as if anybody is insignificant. Yeah. I would say at this moment. The doctor is more like the master than he's ever been. Yeah. 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 I think he he's very close to be without the the time lords, without the restrictions of the laws of time, without companions to to keep him grounded, he he is very much like the master. And I think that's one of the dynamics that they really explore with this. Yeah, I I think it's deliberate because he's talking mm-hmm. about the laws of time and he says, and they will obey me, which is yes. a variant on the master's phrase i am the master and you will obey me definitely yes this is a a very interesting uh exploration of of the doctor's psyche and his connection to the master over historically over time um so adelaide basically says to you know she says and does uh, you think you're uh, in control, but you're not. And she goes in the house. Well, and, and she says, I don't care who you are. The Time Lord Victorious is wrong. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and he unlocks her door for her with the Sonic and says, basically, get out of here. And she goes in. But as she's going in, we she turns and we see she's still got her service weapon yep. on her hip. And she and, draws it. And she commits suicide inside. And that mm-hmm. moment he sees those web pages in his mind again. And sees that her legacy is preserved. Minor changes of instead of she died on on Mars, she died on Earth. Right. And then we have uh, Yuri and uh, uh, um, Mia, Mia in the news, you know, ex- talking is, about it. Which is interesting for all the preparation the doctor did for her death on Mars, 
and convincing her that by her dying, her granddaughter would be the first to fly the super, you know, faster than light ship and all that, that she realizes I can't survive this. Otherwise, that won't happen. Right. Now, they do a pretty good job establishing um, how this alteration to the timeline works. I mean, the doctor, when she says, well, what about my legacy and when my granddaughter and everything, the doctor says, oh, well, Adelaide Brooke can inspire her face to face now. The details change, but the story remains the same. So that was his plan. And she could have gone along with that. But she's she she from talking to him, she has become scared, not about her future, but about everyone's future. Right. That he can change that without moral restraint. He could do anything to human history, and and she even asks him, "Is there nothing you can't do?" And he says, "Not anymore." And so she re- she the reason she commits suicide is not to preserve her legacy for her granddaughter; it's to stop him from thinking he's the Time Lord victorious and can do anything he wants. Right, and that works. He he is once she's killed herself. He he realizes I've gone too far and says mm-hmm. it. Yes. What I wonder is though is it, it, they don't do I think quite enough to explain how the new timeline plays out. You know he sees that she now her obituary now says she's she died on Earth instead of Mars, and then we see web pages where or news stories where Yuri and Mia have explained how she died to protect Earth or how mm-hmm. she her actions protected Earth, but. They don't, they gloss over how they got back to Earth the same day. Mm-hmm. And they gloss over specifically how she died on Earth. So I'm like, how does this inspire her granddaughter if she brought, came back to Earth and committed suicide once she was back on Earth? The best I can headcanon it is they, in order to make her a heroic figure, they suppressed the fact it was suicide. They right. just said yeah. she undertook actions to get back to Earth and died once they got back to Earth, but she got this part of her crew safely back. And she exactly. protected us all from the flood. That's the name of the villain yep. by taking action five back on Mars. So I can only think they suppressed the fact the news did that it was actually suicide. You know, it's interesting to think about, too, because given like the psychology of someone who would undertake such a mission to Mars, the, 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 the people who do su- the such thing have to be willing to give their lives. They have to be psycho- psychologically prepared for sacrificing everything. This is such a risky proposition. The odds are you're not going to make it. You're probably going to die. You know, the. The whole, you know, the Martian move, you know, the the book and movie. Don't, don't tell Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, Elon. Uh, so the fact that she's she's meant to prepare for that probably helps, you know, lead to this ability to do, take this action. Uh, you mentioned, Jimmy, that uh, the doctor realizes, says, I've gone too far. And he turns and sees Ood Sigma standing in the street and asks, is, you know, is now the time for my death? It's that that is have have I gone too far now I have to die that this is continuing that whole uh arc the mythological arc that is going to lead to his regeneration your your and, song uh, will end and all that yeah yes uh and he goes and, and then he disappears so we not I'm not even quite sure whether Ud Sigma was really there or if he was imagining it I think um, he was there okay uh but then he goes inside and the TARDIS's cloister bell begins tolling to once again foretell his death imminent danger for him yeah. Yes. And he Which, says no. And, and, and so he's resisting going to his death now mm. and takes the TARDIS somewhere else to try to run from it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the last time the cloister bell f- was foretelling the doctor's death and regeneration was the fourth doctor's regeneration, right? I think- I, it certainly did on that occasion. Yep. Yeah, I think I read that that was the last time it it did it did that, which is interesting. But so yeah, so now he's uh, he's running from his regeneration, which is from from all he can tell, will be his last regeneration. We've talked about this several times. Uh, this would have been yeah. And based on later, based on later continuity, yeah, yeah. So that would you could say would be why he's running from it. Uh, any last thoughts on this particular story, uh, Father Corey? Mm, nothing here, Jimmy. I really liked it. I thought this was a great story. I thought there were elements, you know, that they could have done better, done more with. But overall, I really liked this story. I think it deserved the Hugo it got. Oh yeah, absolutely. I remember the first time I watched it and being so blown away by, excuse the pun, by the end of it where she actually goes through with it and and kills herself. And that's something, since we comment on things from the faith perspective, even though dramatically that makes this a very powerful ending, in reality, suicide is not the answer. Right. No. Right. There there, there could have been and would have been other ways to resolve the, the problem. Although... Suicide's not the answer, but how do you? How, what about the uh, the nuke, nuking the base and not leaving? Would that oh, like action five? If well, okay. So if there was no way, like if they didn't have the TARDIS, yep. nuking the base and not having a way out, that's fine because you're you're you are saving people there. Your death in that case is not suicide; it is mm-hmm. a foreseeable side effect mm-hmm. of an action that needs to be taken. But it is not a means to another end or an end in itself. It is a yeah. side effect. It, it's it's a it's more of a self sacrifice in defense of the planet of the people on the planet, not just yeah. uh, killing yourself for the sake of killing yourself. Right. Okay. In moral theology, there's a principle known as the law of double effect, which says that you can do something that has a foreseen evil effect. In this case, it's your own death. Death being a physical evil, not a moral evil. You can take uh, undertake an action foreseeing that it has a second effect. That's why it's called the law of double effect, because it's got two effects, provided that the primary effect is not immoral and overbalances the secondary effect, mm-hmm. and also providing the secondary effect is not a means to achieving <clears throat> the first effect. So in this case... Saving Earth from the flood, that's the primary effect. Right. Mm -hmm. And that does overbalance the death of the five remaining people. But it the death of the five remaining people is a is not a means to that end. If we could all teleport out like by a TARDIS, Uh we would do that. So this we're not killing ourselves as a means of stopping the flood. We're killing ourselves. It, we're not killing ourselves, actually. We're just right. we're stopping the flood, and we're going to die as a result of that if we don't right. get teleported out of there. Right. But that's a side effect, and it, and consequently, the side effect can be tolerated for the sake of the greater good of the primary effect. So it's okay. in a morally different category than suicide, where you're killing yourself either in order to kill yourself, that's the goal, or as a means to some other end, like I'm going to kill myself so I can punish someone to feel by making them feel guilty for my death. That would be killing yourself as a means to another end. 
Right. And the doctor does make the point, like, you know, you don't have to die to inspire your granddaughter to go out into into the stars. You can inspire her right here while being alive with her. Yeah. So so that she didn't she didn't have to die, but dramatically they want she, yeah, to make She the did point. it to take the doctor down a peg and thus help human history. But here's where it's a problem because she did kill herself as a means to the end of taking the doctor down a peg. Right. So in the first case, it would have been okay for her to envision her death and accept it. Here, it's actually not because she's violating the principle of double effect. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so very good episode. Deserve, I think, you know, deserving of the accolades it gets and probably one of, one of the better ones of the Russell T. Davies era, given that it comes at the very end. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, uh, I agree. Irony. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but, well, you could say it's, it's a climactic point. So go out on a high. Uh, we, as I mentioned before, uh, well, there is that an animated, uh, episode that we'll talk about before the, the final, uh, regeneration episode that's called Dreamland, uh, that was released as a, uh, a series of webisodes and then released as a whole piece, apparently on BBC, uh, on a, in, in the December of that year before the Christmas episodes, we've already discussed the regeneration episodes, end of time. And, uh, I forget what the other one is. Two part. It's just end of time parts one and two. Oh, okay. That's, that must be why I don't remember it. Uh, we've talked about those uh, actually a couple of years ago, but uh, you can go and check in our archives for that. I'll put links to those in the show notes for this. Uh, and we've also talked about the first episode for the 11th Doctor. We've done all of the regeneration episodes uh, already in our discussions, and those are all online. Uh, but one, once we talk about Dreamland, then we'll do a, we're going to do a retrospective of the Russell T. Davies era and of the 10th Doctor, uh, one of the most beloved Doctors uh, in the modern in the new Who. So uh, we'll, we're going to have some fun with that. So, uh, But that, I think that wraps it up pretty well there. Uh, we do want to take a moment before we go to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Doctor Who, including Kay Hansen, Chris P., Brendan, Matt T., and Dennis W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits this show every week for us. We, we are very grateful for his assistance. So that's it from us. What did you think of The Waters of Mars? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or by sending an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time and we'll be discussing the fourth Doctor story, Image of the Fendal. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, water is patient, Adelaide. Water just waits. It wears down the clifftops, the mountains, the whole of the world. Water always wins. Right. This is going to be fun.